Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so that's why we choose to do it in community. We will take three books this semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and the culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of First Thessalonians, and today we are wrapping up chapter four, moving into chapter five, and the episode is called The Second Coming. So I'm really excited to dig in with you guys about this. Um, I have learned, gosh, I feel like I've just really scratched the surface of learning about the, the second coming, that it is making me want to spend so much more time digging into the day of the Lord and just, um, you know, something I'm throwing around is maybe spending some time this summer studying and doing some more podcasts, maybe even having some guests on where we can talk about this because there is a couple of things that I have walked away just from scratching the surface is that this topic was extremely important to the original disciples, even though that Jesus' second return wouldn't be for thousands of years later. They talked about it, and they talked about it often. So we are going to pick up in chapter 4, where we left off last week, in verse 13. And I'm going to just read it because I feel like that's really important to grasp. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say to you by revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. Here in this day, it seemed like the Thess Thessalonians were worried about those that walked with them in the faith but have now died. They were concerned about what happened to their brothers and sisters who were asleep, who were, who had actually passed away. Now, there are two different meanings of the word asleep. So in this segment, we are talking about believers who have died, and they are worried about them. And he's saying that there's not any advantage one over the other if you're still alive or if you were asleep at the day of the Lord. So it says, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive will be caught up together with um, them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so one thing that we are talking about is these last days in chapter 4 and 5 are things that Paul is going to say over and over again to encourage each other with. The, um, the, the second coming or the last days or the end days or Armageddon, all these words that people use to describe this coming event that we should be anticipating and waiting eagerly for like a bride waiting for a groom is a good thing but for some reason it has turned into the scary thing in the minds of so many believers and I think it's just 
the the mystery of it all and i think honestly the fact that we call it the last days because it's not the last days we get to live in eternity but it sounds kind of the terminology we use kind of sounds scary and i prefer to use Peter's language. In the book of Acts, he calls it the restoration of all things. And isn't that so much more exciting that God, from the moment he expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he has been working to restore all things back to Eden-like conditions. That's good news. And so that's the terminology that I prefer to talk about because I want to remind myself that this is not, ooh, last day is scary, um, horrible things. And I feel... Or I pray that as we work through this scripture, even though there's going to be so many unanswered things, because scripture doesn't just point it out clearly, I hope that you walk away with the great hope and encouragement. So uh, three things really leaped off the page in this section. Um, and the words have to be studied in the Greek. So one, he says, he talks about we who are still alive at the Lord's coming. That really is the second coming of Christ. So it's the, the second coming that that is properly translated to. He also says that we will be caught up together. So that word in the Greek is important. And then um, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, this to meet is an important word in the Greek. And so that's what we're going to tackle today. The first um, thing that I want, let me see where I want to start. Okay. Is this this, the word for the Lord's second coming? It comes from the Greek word harpazo. And this was a common word used back in this day and time, kind of like gospel. When we hear the word gospel, we immediately think, oh, that's a Christian word about Jesus and the followers of Jesus know in the ancient world that was a common word and it was usually um, talked about um, it it meant good news and it was really imperial language the emperor used it he had good news same thing with this parousia the second coming this is historical imperial Roman ideology this is a very common thing that is talking about the second coming of an emperor. Let me give you an example. Let me kind of paint you a picture of what this could look like. It's the second coming of an emperor um, where they would have come to a town to visit it, visit it for a number of reasons, and something would be calling them back to return. And I'm going to give you just one example. During this day in biblical um, times and um, all throughout Turkey, um, Asia Minor, which would it would have been Asia Minor, Israel, even Macedonia, they suffered from quite a few earthquakes. Whenever you go to see excavated sites, you are going to learn that, oh, this isn't standing anymore because earthquakes hit. And so this was very common. In fact, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians or Thessalonica had experienced two major earthquakes in the first century, which was pretty unusual. But One of the reasons that an emperor would come to a town would be to assess some damage. So they would come, they would look at the damage, and then they would offer a gift to the town to use to rebuild. And then they would leave. But they were, if they offered a gift, they were going to have a second coming where they could scope out, hey, what did you do with the gift that I left you? So that's what we're going to talk about today. It was in imperial language of the second coming of an emperor so what would happen in the second coming and this is documented um 
through throughout um, history, let's see, about a century ago, they did a study on some ancient Hellenistic papyri that they translated, and they, they learned a lot about this word, but this is found also in early church commentaries. N.T. Wright talks about it. I found um, some an article in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. So this is not just something obscure that I pulled out. But this is a picture, this Perusia, of the second coming of an emperor. And the people of the town would be alerted of his coming because the watchman on the wall would blow the trumpets. So there would be a trumpet sound because no one wants the emperor come into their town and everyone to treat that as casual. They want to be prepared. So they are all going to come out, but they are going to go out and meet him outside of the city. They are going to meet him outside of the city and then bring him, escort him back into their city to show him with great joy and excitement what they did with his precious gift. And the goal was to show him that the city was better off than before because of his gift and they used his gift wisely. Um, a couple of the things that... Um, was noted that usually the very first stop a Nippuru would make is at the very beginning of the city was the necropolis. This is where they buried the dead. And he, they the townspeople would meet him in the necropolis while he was paying homage to the dead. So the dead in Christ would be there first. And then we go and meet. Do you see, do you see the parallels here? Um, this word, the meeting, is ampentesis. So we are to meet him in the clouds just like the townspeople would meet the emperor outside of the city in the necropolis. This ampentesis was, again, something that would be filled with great joy because such an honor would be bestowed upon them to have this visitation from the emperor. And it would always end in a banquet. So where we see this word throughout scripture, there is typically a banquet involved, especially if you had someone of major importance. And we know at the end, at the very end of time, there will be the marriage supper of the lamb. So what Paul is communicating here, and something that I do want to point out, um, flipping through some notes because I'm going off the cuff right now, is that my anchor Bible dictionary and I thought that I would get to it by now, but they basically communicated that this is not eschatology. It's fragmented ex eschatology. This is not something that as Paul is writing so that to inform them exactly how things are going to happen in the end times. He's writing fragments of eschatology to communicate to this lazy group of people, because remember, they weren't working hard. The last time we met, they were not working hard, and he was encouraging them to be busy about their work, because we have been given a great gift of the Holy Spirit, and time is short, and God is wanting us to use this precious gift that he has given us, he wants us to be busy making this world a better place. And this is a picture of in his return, we get to meet him outside of the city and we get with great joy to escort him back down to earth and show him what we did. I personally had the most perfect picture of what this could look like. Happened to me a few weeks ago. My daughter, my oldest daughter, was at a friend's house, and I went to go pick her up, and they both came running out to the car, and they're like, you have to come in. You have to see what we did. And um, they made forts. You know, it's fun to build a fort. They made a fort city throughout the entire house. There were roads. There was a mailing system. There was a grocery store. There was a restaurant. I was blown away with the intricate detail of this fort city that they made. And so 
it, as I was reading this, I was reminded of what joy they had to show at me every little bit of their creativity. And this is what Paul is saying is like, hey, guys, we are going to have a second coming of our Lord and we get to show him, not that we have to show him, we get to show him how we used his precious gift. Okay, one word, I told you there were three. So we had the at the coming of the Lord parousia and we get to meet him in the clouds that's ampentesis but there was another word being caught up and that word is harpazo but when the 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 greek bible got tra translated into latin for the latin vulgate that word harpazo was translated rapture so that is where rapture terminology came from all of us who are still alive will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, again, this is fragmented eschatology. I do not know if while we are in the clouds with the Lord waiting, you know, embracing him, cheering him on in that little time and space that we're waiting to come back to earth to show him what we did. I don't know if that is outside of space and time continuum. Maybe it will seem like a brief moment, but seven years have gone by, seven years of tribulation. I don't know. It doesn't say. So I do not know exactly how this takes place, but the message that Paul was trying to get to the church is use your gift wisely because we will show our Lord how we use the gift of the Holy Spirit. So moving on into chapter five, he, Paul is moving on to talking about the day of the Lord. Now this is important because this, um, this terminology, well, it's important on many different levels, but I will say that I want to start this section by a quote from Dr. Constable. He says that the apostles were led to remind their converts. Now he's talking about all the apostles. They were led to remind their converts that continued watchfulness and self-restraint were necessary. I am telling you today, if this was important to the men who physically and literally walked with Jesus, it was because he communicated that to them. And how much more so, 2,000 years later, we are so much more closer to Christ's return. Do we need to make it our mission to remind our friends and family in faith that, the, that our continued watchfulness and self Restraint are necessary. So we'll break this down. It starts off by saying about this. He starts off saying about the seasons and times, brothers, you need, you do not need anything to be written to you. Now, why don't we need things written to us? Because remember, he spent three weeks with them. So what I believe, and after looking at this, it looks like that in those three weeks, he thought, hmm, what do I need to talk to these converts about? Oh, Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. That was of extreme importance to all of the apostles. And so he's already talked to him about this. And he's like, we don't really need to address the specifics again. But these times and seasons were important to the Lord. The Thessalonians, it looks like, were taught about the return of Jesus and the other prophecies in regards to this. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the day of the Lord. Paul taught the signs and times and to discern these signs and times. This is important. No one knows the day or hour. That is correct. But we are taught to discern the signs and seasons. So the seasons is the characteristics of the period. Can you look around right now and think, hmm, there is a lot of characteristics that are similar to revelation language. I believe so. Um, 
Also, I want to mention in Matthew 16 that Jesus criticized the religious leaders because they could not discern the signs of the time. This is of extreme importance to our Lord to discern the times and the seasons. Okay, now he says, for you yourselves will know, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief to the, in the night. They know this very well because Paul's taught him this word, the day of the Lord was mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament. This is Old Testament language. In fact, it would have been a very familiar phrase to the people familiar with the Old Testament. David Gusick says that this day of the Lord is a season of time when God rapidly advances his agenda and is fulfilled by Jesus's judging of the earth. One thing I think is so interesting is as we approach the day of the Lord, we should see God rapidly advancing his agenda. Now, also to remind you, it says it's fulfilled by Jesus is judging the earth. This divine judgment, this is the Zondervan illustrated Bible background commentary. It reminds us that this divine judgment or another word could be maybe tribulation, great tribulation is for the enemies of God. It's not for us. And the time of deliverance, let's see, the judgment is for the enemies of God and the time of deliverance is for the people of God. This will take place at Christ's return, the parousia of God. This uh, particular church were worried that they weren't spiritually or morally worry, uh, worthy to meet the Lord on that day. And Paul is just blasting through all of that fear and saying, oh, no, 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 no. You got this. We've talked about this. You've got it. Okay. He also mentions that this... Um, this day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come swiftly and briefly. This uh, season will come on as a surprise. This really, gosh, last chapter in this chapter reminded me so much of the parable of the ten virgins. I can remember studying it or hearing of it in youth and children's church as a child, and I was always so confused. But really, I br now that I'm an adult and I've been married, I get such a bit better picture of it that there were the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom, <coughs> and they were supposed to have their lamps filled because he could come at night, and you have to be prepared. Well, five of them just put that off. They procrastinated, but there were five who had their oil ready, and I just picture them at night in their homes looking out the window every night checking, is he coming? Is he coming? I see. I can picture them in their wedding dress, like all ready, expecting, having anticipation. They weren't busy eating, drinking, and being merry. They were prepared because on the day of the Lord, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. It will be a surprise. No one will be really aware that he's coming until he's here. Now, this day of the Lord is mentioned, gosh, like I said, 19 times in the Old Testament, but a couple of verses a couple passages that would be interesting for, for us to take a deeper dive into um, are Isaiah 13, nine, verses 9 through 11, Joel chapter 2, the whole thing, Zephaniah chapter 1, 14 through 18. Um, let's see. One of the last thoughts that I have is that judgment comes at night. Remember, the judgment is for the enemies of God, but the millennial reign comes in the day. That's the deliverance for the people we we get to experience and partake in the millennial reign. Okay, verse three. When he says peace and security, when they say, when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them. Like labor pains come on pregnant women and they will not escape. We're talking about the dreadful day of the Lord for the enemies of God. 
Um, it says that when they say peace and security, this is interesting. The Bible, no, no, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary said that this, again, is Imperial Roman slogan. They had the Pax Romano or the Pax et Securitas, meaning their slogan was peace and safety. Rome will provide you peace and safety. Well, that peace and that safety came with the sword. If you didn't do what they said, then they just disposed of you. So Rome offered a salvation from unrest and danger. But Paul has a stern warning for all who trust in political power. Whoa. How many of us get caught up in wanting our government to keep us safe and for us putting our hope in our government instead of our hope in Jesus? This day will be a tragedy for the unbeliever. They are lulled to sleep by the political and economic condition. This is very familiar language when we study about the Antichrist. It seems that this is going to be the, the same message that the Antichrist would use. And he will have a false, he'll lead Israel into a false security and they will sign a peace treaty with him. And then he's going to turn on them. We talked a little bit about this in Daniel's 70th week, whenever we were studying um, the, the book of Daniel together. And so these are just things to think about that we do not, in, in the end times especially, we cannot find our peace and safety in government bodies, but only through Christ. So in verse four, he says, but you bros are not in the dark for this day um, to overtake you. You are all sons of light and the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to darkness. So this was good news for this Thessalonian church who was a little bit worried about their stance. He's like, no way. This terminology, darkness and light, um, well, darkness and night will symbolize alienation from God and ignorance about the imminent arrival of the day of the Lord. So we don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be classified or characterized by sons of darkness, meaning that we're ignorant and clueless about the day of the Lord. The sons of light, light and day are symbolized by closeness and awareness. This was common terminology found in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, in the Essene or Qumran community. They always were anticipating an end time battle against the sons of darkness, uh, people who were, again, just clueless and ignorant of God's coming. In Revelation, God, um, John writes to come out of Babylon. Babylon represents the world system. We need to have our eyes focused on God and the things of God. So verse six says, so then we must not sleep like the rest. We must stay awake and be serious. I found this part very interesting. Well, I'll go on. Verse seven says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And remember nightness, our night, the thief comes in the night and nightness or darkness, not nightness, night and darkness where we're associated with being ignorant of the Lord's return. And so I found this so interesting. There is a huge underground movement in the church of Iran and the lead pastor is from the United States. He went over there. He met his wife. He brought her back to the States and he offered her a beautiful, wonderful life. And after an amount of time, she cried and she wanted to go back home where Christians are being persecuted. And he couldn't believe this because he had offered her everything, safety, money, everything that she could ever want. And she said, 
You Americans are being lulled to sleep and I'm being lulled to sleep with you. I want to go home where I can be awake. And I found that that was so interesting that here in the text, Paul is warning, do not be lulled to sleep. What are the things that desensitize us? We talk a lot about being desensitized. My goodness, telephones, or telephones, our cell phones, TV. We, we, I mean, we say, oh yeah, I just want to mindlessly scroll at the end of the day. And, and Paul is pleading with these people, be alert, stay awake, be of the day. Nothing good happens at night. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, we must, here we go again, be serious. This word is self-control, calm, collected, watchful. We must be serious and to put on the armor of faith and love on our chest and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Here, Paul, once again, is talking about faith, hope, and love. These are very important Um beliefs with him and we talked about that early on we went over each of those in the earlier chapters but he is also using battle language here we notice that it's like armor just like he does in ephesians that this is something that we need to be ready for battle and we must protect our vital parts we trust in god we love others and we protect our thinking by keeping christ's return on the forefront of our minds Dr. Constable says that their position, the Thessalonians, their position in Christ required watchful preparation in view of their future. How much more do we need to have watchful preparation? Then he goes on to say, oh, I wanted to read this in verse 9. Let me look. It says, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Hey, that's good news. I want that to seek in whenever you start getting a little nervous. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, and in that asleep in that verse means dead. So whether we are alive or dead, we get to live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. So this is supposed to be good news to let us know, hey, there are dark times ahead and the people who are lulled to sleep, the people who are not, um, what is that word? Like they're, they're, um, they're clueless. They are, um, ignorant. I, I keep forgetting that word. The people that are ignorant, it, things are going to be bad for them. But those of you that are living by the day, hey, the day of wrath is not for us. That is good news. Then he goes into this closing section. There's four things that he is talking about here. The first segment is esteeming leaders. And he says, hey, give recognitions to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and regard them very highly in love because of the work they do and be at peace among yourselves. So he is telling you how to esteem your leaders. But remember, there were no formal leaders here in this church. So this is probably wealthier individuals who allowed the church to use their homes. They provided the financial support. We, we know from Acts 17, Jason is probably one of them. These were the patrons and benefactors that I talked about back in Rome, the last chapter of Romans. Remember Phoebe, she had money, time, education, the home to do effective work in the city, to be busy about making the world a better place in the name of the Lord. And he's saying, hey, respect these people. Also, um, he goes on to talk about how we treat troublemakers. 
uh, let's see. He says, we urge you. I think that this is such an interesting language for leaders. If you were a leader in your business, in your home, um, or in the church, this word urge was a friendly request from a king. They would use these, this, this word. Paul isn't commanding, but he's requesting and he's quite confident his request will be obeyed. I think that that is a sign of a good leader, not going in with an authoritative fist pound on the desk. You must do this. But if you really have the heart of your, your people, you can urge them to do something saying, Hey, this is extremely important to me. And if you're a good leader, then that's going to be important to your people and they're going to do that. So he's, this is not an exhaustive list, but he does say, Hey, warn those who are irresponsible. This word irresponsible is an, um, another word for it is idle. And this can be seen two different ways. It was used as a military term to the soldiers who were not willing to submit to their commander. Um, the ones that are a little bit, uh, rebellious, but it was also, um, for the, the believers that maybe were just a little lazy and they weren't doing the assignment that God had called them to do. So you, we need to warn those people, Hey, wake up, be busy. Jesus is coming back. We get to meet him in the sky. We don't want to miss out on showing them how we made this world a better place. Um, comfort those who are discouraged. Um, another word was timid. And this is probably religious discouragement. You remember there was, there were a lot of persecutions going on. There was anxiety over Christ's return. We see that today. We need to encourage and comfort these people. We need to help the weak. This word weak is probably those that are moral or spiritually weak. And we are to be patient with all three of these categories. He says, be patient with everyone. So all three, the people, and we are called to help difficult people. And so we need to be patient. We need to love them. We need to encourage them. And we need to see to it that no one repays evil for evil. Always pursue what is good for one another. And I think that Dr. Constable's quote is so beautiful. The best evidence of a Christian of Christian maturity is non-retaliation. So if there are areas in your life where you have been attacked or persecuted by other people, but you didn't retaliate, well, pat yourself on the back. That is a sign of Christian growth and maturity. He then goes on to say, rejoice always. I, I loved this. Um, I found this interesting. This is the shortest verse. In the Greek Bible, in the Septuagint, our shortest verse is Jesus wept, but this is actually shorter in the Greek Septuagint. But we are to rejoice always. Remember, this is a church that is being persecuted, but the joy of the Lord was their strength. There are 70 New Testament commands to rejoice. This is extremely important to the Lord. Number seven or verse 17, we are to pray consistently. That does not mean that you need to be on your knees 24 hours a day saying prayers. Um, th this, this word in the Greek, it, it kind of has the same connotation as a hacking cough. Like, you know, you have this cough all day. You're not coughing 24 hours, but I mean, it just kind of comes and goes. Well, that's how our prayer life should be. We, we do need the schedule intentional time in our prayer closet. We need corporate prayer, prayer meetings, but we also need to just be mindful in talking to God throughout the day. We are also to give thanks in everything. Oh, gratitude. This is something that I find myself doing in times and seasons of life where I'm discouraged. Um, I will start 
writing one thing a day in my journal that I'm thankful for, but it also moves our focus on off of whatever we're complaining about, but onto small, beautiful moves of God that we often overlook, um, in our day to day. And, um, and Paul is encouraging us to give thanks. Don't stifle the spirit. This is honestly something that I have been asking the Holy Spirit to speak to me about because, uh, another word how I have known it growing up is don't quench the spirit. This word quench, the picture is throwing a bucket of water on a fire. We have the fire of the Holy Spirit in us, but there are ways, there are things that we can participate in that's like throwing a bucket of water on that fire. And Peter, I'm sorry, Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and tells Timmy that we must continually be fanning the flame, stoking the fire of the spirit that's in within us. This is intentional and it takes a lot of effort, but there are things that we can do that throw water on the fire and things like doubt, things like indifference. I think that that is what Paul's communicating here, that these people the night are just indifferent about the second coming of the Lord and things like distractions. Whoa, we live in a nation that is full of distractions and all of these things can quench the spirit. But my prayer has been, Lord, as I read all through the New Testament, I see where the gospel enters that idolatry and paganism is driven out. I look at America and we are far more pagan today than we were when I was a child. So why is the gospel not advancing in power? And I know that it's we are doing things that quenches the spirit, that is putting out the power and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so my question to the Lord has been, what are things that we do? Because it's tradition in the American church that is actually quenching the spirit. Show me, reveal that to me. And I've been on this journey where God has just really been taking me back to the early church and things that they did because I want to move in power. I want to move in might. I want to make a difference. I want when Jesus returns, and I know you do too, um, we want to meet him in the air and say, look what we did. Look how the captives were set free and the lame could walk and the blind could see and the hopeless found hope. And this world is a better place because darkness fled and light advanced. He ends up closing and says to test. Oh, don't despise prophecies. Ooh, this is another good one. Um, uh, we're wrapping up, but there's just, there was so much goodness here. You know, whenever I was off at Bible college, I went to an extremely, well, for me, for me, it was extremely charismatic Bible um, school. It was a spirit filled Bible college. And there would be times, you know, well, in fact, I've heard that revival has broken out this week at Christ for the nations. There would be times that um, like, Asbury is happening. We would go to chapel in the mornings. We did that every morning and the spirit of God would just break out and we would never go to class. Now this wouldn't go on for days, but it would go on for hours and hours. And I had that experience, but every time that it happened, it was super exciting, but some weird things would happen. You know, people would just like seem like, I don't know, just things that were brought attention to them. And it would just be things that I would question. I, I'd, I'd call my dad and tell him what happened, but it was so exciting. You know, I was more excited, but then I'd say, oh, but then some weird things happened. And my dad would always say, when there's a great movement of the spirit, there will always be a movement of the flesh. And so here Jesus said, or Paul is saying, don't despise the prophecies. What it seemed like, there were a lot of people that were moving out of this 
this pagan occultism. And this is something that I read in one of the commentaries that said spiritual moves occur within the mystery religions and pagan cult worship. So there were spiritual, like when people, people could have encounters with things other than the Holy Spirit. There are other spirits out there and there are spiritual moves that happen in those and they mimic the Holy Spirit. So when the spirit breaks out, it can concern those who broke away from these pagan practices because it reminds them like, Ooh, is this, is this a bad spirit? Um, but remember they're just mimicking and perverting the move of God. We can't run from every move of God because we're scared of our bad experiences. So Paul's saying, test the spirit with the word of God. So obviously when these prophecies were breaking out, some people that had moved from this pagan occult worship that they were just, oh, they, they didn't want to accept prophecies because maybe that was something they experienced in their, their cult temples. And Paul's saying, no, some of these prophecies are coming from the Holy Spirit. How we know what spirit they're from is it will line up with the word of God. Don't despise them, but test all things. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. And then may God sanctify you. It just means set you apart. May your whole Spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. Remember that blameless, the word is to get right quickly with God. That doesn't mean to walk in perfection, but when we do fall away, we repent, we confess, we move on. And um, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will help you be whole in mind, body, and spirit. God's work will be completed if our response is proper. And then he closes and says, pray for us. Inter intercession moves God to do things. I thought that this was huge as I pondered on this. Intercession moves God to do things. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. We need to be a people of prayer and especially in the days that we are in because we have to test the spirits. We have to discern the times. We have to be in the word and we have to be bathing everything in prayer. We need to be alert. We need to be serious about these times because my friends, Jesus is coming back and it's exciting because it is the restoration of all things. I hope you are doing well. I hope you loved this book as much as I did. I felt like there was so, it was just simple. It was back to the basics. It was practical things that this early church needed, but that we also need to apply to our lives. It was a good refresher and reminder of what's important to the heart of God. And it's definitely seen that the second coming and us being watchful and alert is right there on the top of the list. We will take next week off. I am actually going to be at our very first sisterhood retreat with uh, 14 guests and about nine leaders. So be praying for that. I'm sure you'll be seeing pictures and there'll be um, one that we'll have in the fall. Um, so be praying for that. But then the following week, we will pick up with second Thessalonians. It's going to be just as good as the first. So you have a little time to catch up and to read and to study. We'll Oh, we're going to pray for Israel. And then we're going to go. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that we are able to be grafted in to your chosen people. We thank you for the gift on the cross. And we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Israel and the Jews around the world. And we pray right now that those that do not realize that you were Messiah, that their eyes will be opened, that they have ears to hear, that they have softened hearts, and that 
you bring them revelation of who you are so that at your second coming, they can be joined with us. We thank you for the move that you're doing, and we thank you for the people that you're sending to to share the good news of the gospel with them. In your holy name I pray, amen. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you later. Happy reading.